Mark chapter 9. We're going to read verse 49 through to chapter 10, verse 12. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it's Mark 9 from, from verse 49. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavour, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. Then he arose from there, and came to the region of Judea, by the other side of the Jordan. And the multitudes gathered to him again, and he was as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him, about the, uh, asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word. Let's pray before we study it together. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to return to Mark's gospel. We pray that as we read these words and study these words that are set before us today, that we would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in our faith. Encourage us and uplift us that we might be better equipped to serve you in all of our ways. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are finally back in Mark's Gospel. Uh, it might be a little bit strange to be picking up at this particular point in Mark chapter 9. Now there's probably a case for verses 49 and 50 being connected to all of the stuff that we've seen leading up to it in chapter 9. But I think it's also very important for us to keep these two verses in mind for what we see through the rest of Mark 10, particularly up to verse 45. There's a reason I separated it out. It might not be the normal thing to do, but I think it's still an appropriate thing to do. And as I've said a few times, because I'm the pastor, you guys are just along for the ride. Bit of a power trip, isn't it? But I really do think that these verses here about maintaining saltiness, maintaining the peace, those sorts of things we see in verse 48, uh, 49 and 50 of Mark chapter 9 really do set us up to see all the practical things that Jesus says following this in a very particular light. Things like marriage and divorce, children, giving up what we have to go with God with the rich young ruler, uh, God doing all things and serving. These verses can't be excluded from what comes in these sections to follow. It's really quite foundational. Now, as I said when we uh, read Malachi 3, 1-7 before, 
the section in Mark's Gospel that, followed, uh, that preceded this is a section about the eternal punishment for unrepentant sinners. That is, that they go to hell. And we see three times that hell is a place where uh, the, the worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. That's the background to what Jesus says that we pick up in verse 49 this morning. And with that in mind, when Jesus then says in verse 49, for everyone will be seasoned with fire, we might start to worry. Jesus just said, if your eye causes you to sin, it's better to pluck it out and enter heaven with one eye. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to be dismembered by removing those sinful things in our lives and enter heaven and to keep them and go to hell. But here we see Jesus says everyone will be seasoned with fire. We've just seen the fire won't be quenched. And maybe we get to this and a sense of panic settles over us. Are we all destined for hell no matter what? Might be a question that popped up in the disciples' minds. And it might be one that we had reading this this morning. But let's look at what Jesus is saying here. Jesus tells us, Everyone will be seasoned with fire, but he doesn't stop there. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Fire is not always something used to describe hell. The clear example of this that we read in Malachi chapter 3 verse 2 is the refining that takes place. And this seems to be what Jesus is now referencing in verse 49. It's a different fire. It's a refining fire. It's a purifying fire as opposed to the destructive fire we've seen before. Malachi chapter 3, particularly verses 1 to 5, very clearly point towards the coming of the Lord God himself to be among his people and to save his people from sin. We see the impact of Christ's promise there to be a purifying fire, which means that the impurities of sin will be removed. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Romans 12, 1-2 says that as Christians, we are meant to live as living sacrifices. And as living sacrifices to God, we are seasoned with salt. Salt was and still is an amazing preserving agent and a flavorful thing. It is, as Jesus says, good. Maybe we shouldn't listen to cardiologists so much. Salt is good. It makes everything better. In moderation, of course. There is a change in tone between verses 48 and 49. There's an uplifting nature of what comes on here. There has been a severe lesson of the drastic nature and the enormous cost of sin and the punishment for sin that is unrepented of leading up to this point. But what we have here, Jesus is encouraging the people by referring back to Malachi chapter 3 that there is hope of salvation. The promised one will purify us and season us with salt. That's where we start this morning. It's with that note of great hopefulness that there is salvation from sin. A more dependable means of knowing we're saved because cutting off our hand doesn't deal with our heart. Plucking out our eye doesn't deal with the temptation we still feel. Cutting off our foot doesn't really deal with the root issue of sin. But here, 
Here we have a definite means by which sin will be dealt with, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus goes on to say, salt salt is good, as I said, and he encouraged us to not let our salt lose its flavour. As I said in the kids' talk, salt loses its flavour when another chemical is added to the sodium chloride that makes up salt. But I did say in the kids' talk, it's not a chemistry lesson. We're seeing the spiritual lesson that Jesus is driving us towards here. And as we get into that, I'm going to say something very profound here. Salt is salt until it's not salt. Took a long time to come up with that one. Now again, we're not going down the chemistry pathway. We're not talking sodium chloride. That's not the point that Christ is making. If we see the end of verse 50, Jesus talks about having salt in yourself and you will have peace with one another. Has anyone been to the shops lately? Some said no, very wise people. Chaotic at the moment. What decorations are up? We see Christmas decorations all through the shops. Now, while Christmas, the way we do it today, is often so secularised, but there's a reason why it's also a good thing for Christians. It's an opportunity for us to remember that our Saviour came. Under all the gift-giving that you do this year, remember that there is an important thing that this is meant to remind us of, that our Saviour came. The one who purifies us, the one who seasons us with salt, came. He is the most special gift we could ever receive because he saves us from sin, protects us from hell, and the one who seasons our lives lives. One who makes us a pleasing sacrifice to our Father. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 2, verse 14, it says this about the coming of Christ, and I'll read from the ESV. Glory to God in the highest and on peace among those with whom he is pleased. This verse starts off with something that we might describe in commentaries as, as doxological. It's a fancy theological word that basically just means it's praising God. It starts off by praising God. That is a message the angels delivered to the shepherds out in the field. Glory to God in the highest. And when we see the peace that comes from that is peace among those with whom God is pleased. How is God pleased with us? Not by our own merit, not by our own actions, but by the completed work of Christ. When we have that salt within us granted to us by God, then the result is peace. Peace first with God and from our peace with God, peace with one another. I've said this lots of times in different sermons and Bible studies and all sorts of things. But there are two directions or axes that are very important. The most important one is a vertical one. Focus on God. Our worship services are designed to focus on God. We worship Him. As a result of that, there is a horizontal Byproduct, which is peace with one another. So going back more clearly to, to staying salty is what Jesus is telling us here. Jesus is saying if we want to be the salt of the world, 
then we need him. We cannot leave him, we cannot stray from him, we cannot depart from his ways. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 to 8 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. See, this is how we stay healthy. This is how we stay salty, by trusting in, by leaning on, by continually acknowledging God. Dependence on him is the only way that this goal of not losing our saltiness can be achieved. In the other Gospels where this lesson of Christ is recorded, there's a little bit of extra weightiness added at the end of it. That the salt that loses its saltiness will be thrown out onto the streets and trampled underfoot. There is a lot of motivation for us to remain with our Lord, with the one who seasons our lives and grants us peace with God and, as Paul says in the book of Romans, so far as it's possible, with those around us. Those who lose their saltiness are thrown out, trampled underfoot. They do not last to heaven. It is those who are destined for hell. So being spiritually salty is a good thing and something we should aspire to have among ourselves, something we should encourage one another to have. As I said, those two verses there, and we could say a whole lot more about them, but they go on to underscore so many practical life lessons that we go on through to uh, chapter 10, verse 45. <clears throat> now, you notice in chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus does move on to a different area. He moves on to the, the region of Judea, on the other side of the, the Jordan River. But there is still continuity. And in case you'd forgotten, when Jesus goes somewhere, people flock to him. Interesting, Mark often writes about people coming to Jesus, but here he writes a few things if... You've got to remember this is a normal pattern. Multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them. We can't forget that when Jesus went places, when Jesus taught, he wasn't in small gatherings. Multitudes gathered, crowds flocked to hear him. What Jesus is about to say about marriage and divorce was before a great many people. Now, it's interesting, Jesus is teaching. We don't know what the lesson he taught was. Maybe it was about marriage and divorce. And the Pharisees have a follow-up test for Jesus. We don't know. We know he was teaching, though. Maybe it was connected to this. Maybe it wasn't. But he goes on to give us a lesson about this anyway in response to the test that the Pharisees ask. And the Pharisees come before Jesus and they say... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Mark knows their motives. He said, it's testing us for the last words after the question. Again, maybe that came out of left field. Maybe it didn't. doesn't matter. This is what the situation is. And Jesus responds with wisdom, knowing that the continued desire for him to be destroyed by the Pharisees remained strong. What did Moses command you? 
As we're going to see, that's an interesting question for Jesus to ask them. What did Moses command you? Because Moses permitted something, but Moses didn't command this. The Pharisees, however, they do know the Old Testament. They've twisted it. They've misapplied it. They've used it for personal gain. But they do know, and they respond with some measure of wisdom. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? Well, he, he, he did permit a man to write a certificate of divorce to dismiss his wife. They know the Old Testament. If you would go to Deuteronomy chapter 21, the first four verses there are where we find Moses speaking about this. So the Pharisees, okay, you want to get divorces, fine, but you need to understand what Moses was actually talking about. Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, particularly in verses 1 to 3, which I haven't got it marked, but I'll turn there. And we'll read this out together. Look for the ands. The word and that keeps popping up in these verses here. Twenty-four, sorry, yes, I've got a typo in my script here. Thank you. Deuteronomy twenty-four, one to four. When a man takes his wife, takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has gone and depa- when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband detests her and writes a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land in which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Each time we see that word and there, we see Moses dealing with a hypothetical situation. A hypothetical situation that gets worse and worse and worse. Now the Hebrew and that's used there backs that up. The people were taking divorce and marriage, ultimately, very lightly. It's very possible that the time spent in Egypt had an impact on how many, particularly the first two generations of the Israelites who left Egypt, viewed marriage. They don't take it seriously. They want divorces. They want their husbands to be able to divorce their wives and they want that to continue. But this comes from the hardness of their hearts. What Moses says there is that if there's uncleanness, and that is Sin and a significant sin, which is adultery, that is a reason for divorce given in Scripture. But the laziness, that's really the laziness, is laziness to uphold and regard properly what God has ordained. The laziness just led to people wanting divorces more and more and more. Now, we don't know whether the Pharisees were promoting for it or not, but we see here that it's just a test. They're even using marriage something God himself ordained as a means to trap somebody. It's twisted. It's twisted. 
Moses did not prohibit it completely because adultery was a real problem. But if you look at what Moses wrote there, he doesn't promote or endorse. He permits in certain cases. Verse 6, Jesus and onwards, Jesus takes us back to creation for God's design for marriage. We see how many people can be in a marriage together. Two. The two shall become one flesh. Now we all know that language changes over time. In the Hebrew, back in, uh, back in Genesis, the word used there is devak. And that word for a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now cleaving is another one of those words that can mean two different things, can't it? Yeah, cleavers in the kitchen, they cut things up, or it can stick things together. Words can change over time, language can change, but even in modern Hebrew, which is very different than biblical Hebrew, the word devak is still used to talk about glue, and it's often a very, very strong type of glue when it's used today in Israel to talk about it. They shall be joined together, so two shall be joined together. And what two? A man and a woman. This is who marriage is for. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. This is what God says. Marriage is for one man to one woman to the exclusion of all others as long as they both shall live. Now I realize that saying that in this day and age is a scary thing. Just over a month ago, Andrew Thorburn, who applied to be the CEO of the Essendon Football Club, lost his job there because the pastor at his church said that. I realise that this isn't a popular thing to say, but this is what God says. One man to one woman, to the exclusion of all others. And what God has brought together, and Jesus is recorded as saying this again in Matthew 19, what God has brought together, let not man separate. We see here marriages for one man to one woman. They are to stick together as close as you possibly can. And who can tear it apart? Nobody, because God has joined them together. We do not have the right to separate it. Not even the people who entered into the marriage have the right to break that marriage up according to God's word. Unless there is adultery, they do not have that right. But we might go, why does that matter? Don't people fall out of love? How many times do we hear that today? They used to love each other, now they're just good friends, so the marriage isn't working. They fell out of love. They should be allowed to be divorced. We hear that. But Jesus is clear, don't mess marriage up. If somebody leaves you and issues you a divorce certificate, that is one thing. And it is a terrible thing to have happen to you. It is a truly heartbreaking thing. Jesus is not saying here, don't be a victim of divorce. He is saying, don't seek out a divorce. 
back to that Deuteronomy 24, Jesus is saying that the hardness of heart is in issuing a divorce certificate. Again, unless the other party has committed adultery, you don't have an out, no matter what the world tells us we might have. But again, why does this matter? Salt and peace. One of the ways we have and show those things is in Christian marriages. Now, we don't get it perfect. But think about the wonderful testimony of those who have been married for extended periods of time. I think of my parents, 35 years. I think of Chris and Frey, who had 50 years earlier in the year. Peter and Kathy, who were heading away for a week to celebrate 49 years this Thursday. Think about the witness of those marriages. This is one of many reasons why the church has fought so hard to maintain the standard of marriage being between one man to one woman to the exclusion of all others. Marriage is presented to us in media as an outdated institute, something that can be updated no matter what we want, according to what we want, rather. It's just like an app on your phone. You get the updates every couple of days. And you just did it a few days ago. We'll change it again. We'll modify it, make it better. No, God made it good. Marriage is God's design for how families are to form and function well. Just because marriage has been done badly by some people doesn't mean that God's design and purposes are bad. That is not the lesson to take out of that at all. Marriage is something to protect, to cherish and to value. Think of the peace between people who are married. Now, wedding days, I say this, the guy has two brothers, so I protect my right to say this. I think wedding days are often overly romanticised. Think of me what you will for that statement. Often overly romanticised. I don't know, I'll just say that as one who grew up with two brothers. But a few weeks ago, we were at a, at a wedding for a family friend. And that couple very clearly loved and were at peace with one another. Again, as a fellow with two brothers, I'm not ashamed to say it was a beautiful ceremony. When marriage is done God's way, when marriage is done the right way, which is only God's way, then there is peace. And it's a means by which peace can be shown and spread. In Christian marriage, we see a means by which salt, or which we can be the salt and light to the world, to those who are married. Think about what your marriage says to your children your parents, to your friends, to your neighbours, to your co-workers? Do you visibly cherish and love one another as a witness to God's even greater love for you? To those who aren't married, encourage those who are. And it's appropriate that if you desire marriage, to pray that God might make this blessing a reality for you too in his timing. But above all, Stay salty. Trust, love, and depend on God. The world outside of this church building, they they see what we do. 
Your church family sees what you do. Your neighbours, your co-workers, most importantly, God sees what you do. What do people see when they look at you? They see someone who is seasoned by Christ as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God? Or not? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for what we have read today. There are many, many, many more sermons that could be preached on these passages. Yet, Lord God, we pray that what we have seen today would encourage us and strengthen us. We pray that we would not lean on our own understanding, that we would continually turn to you and trust your guidance to lead us in paths of righteousness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.